or just, you know, a call, uh, you know, just be there for them. Let's encourage them. So, Father, we thank you this morning. We're so grateful for your grace in our lives. And we pray today that you, Lord, would be with Sterling right now. He's in the hospital. He's at least having some tests run or whatever he's doing. Watch over him. I pray that there will be a good outcome and not a bad outcome, Lord. We pray for grace, encouragement. Pray for Susan. Just pray for that family, Lord. I pray for Jeremy and Helen, Lord. I just pray as they're walking through the season of loss and grief, such a tragedy, Lord. It came very quickly. It just, again, reminds us all of the fragility, of the, the frailness of our lives, oh God. And, and Lord, I just pray that you will comfort them in this hour, that you will help us as your people surround them with love and may they feel your presence as we are with them in this hour of crisis. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And now I ask, Lord, speak into our lives. May your spirit move supernaturally, revealing yourself to us in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 1. You know, as you open the pages of the book of Genesis, I'll, I'll get to Ephesians. I'm not, I promise I won't preach to the whole Bible, but we'll start in the book of Genesis because I believe that we gain a little understanding as to the nature of the mystery of God's will. And we know from reading the first few chapters that God created a perfect world. The Bible says everything was good. The relationship in that marriage was phenomenal. Can you imagine? No conflicts. Isn't that amazing? just a great marriage, you know, no differences, no problems, and their relationship with God was awesome. But then all of a sudden we know that they were tempted, sin entered into the world, and immediately once sin enters in, it taints and affects our nature and it impacts us and how we relate to each other. And what was the first thing Adam said when God confronted him and said, hey, have you been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because obviously, you know, Adam knew some things that he wasn't supposed to know. And uh, God pointed that out to him. And also, Adam had run away from God. Isn't that kind of our first response? We make a mistake. We commit a sin. We do the wrong thing. We recognize it. You know, we tend to isolate. We tend to withdraw. First thing God says to him, okay, what about this, Adam? And you know what he says? It's the woman you gave me. You know, you know, you can see the blame game is already starting, you know. And not only did he blame Eve, he had the audacity to blame God. I mean, listen, God, if you hadn't given her to me, things were going okay until that point. And it's amazing how you and I, when we do the wrong thing in our life, we're so quick to turn around and blame somebody else for our, our sin, our problem, our mistake. And I've said this before, but when you and I develop a victim's mentality that's always, you know, I'm here because of, I'm here because of this, I'm here because of that, we never move past being a victim. And the moment we take responsibility, not necessarily for what's been done to us, though I think we can actually do that, we can actually be empowered by forgiving people and not living and allowing the past to define our present, Then we can be set free and we can begin to address ourselves and move forward in our lives. How powerful is that? But sin is into the world and from that point on, all we get is brokenness. Right off in the first family, you talk about, you know, sibling rivalry and you talk about sibling conflict. You know, you have Cain who's envious of his brother. Um, Abel, thank you. (laughs) 
I had a momentary lapse, you know, for Abel. And eventually God points it out to Cain and says, hey, Cain, listen, you know, you've got some problems. Your attitude is wrong. You know, you have a nasty attitude towards your brother. And how many know hatred leads to murder? It starts with an idea. It starts with a seed. It eventually, if it's not dealt with, it grows. And we saw the fruit of it. Cain eventually kills Abel. God says, hey, where's Abel? And uh, Cain goes, I don't know. Am I, my, am I my brother's keeper? And God goes, listen, I'm hearing his, his blood crying out to me right now. So God knows what's going on. We move from there to chapter 6. We hear the story of the flood where God said he was grieved that he had created humanity because he said their thoughts were perpetually evil. Well, that's not a very nice statement about us as human beings. What he was basically saying is our sin nature was so dominating us, we had no room for God in our lives and in our thoughts. Eventually, we see the story of Noah who was spared. And we go from Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then we get to the book. At the conclusion of the book, we have the beautiful story of Joseph and how God is at work bringing harmony and order out of humanity's conflicts and disorder. And that's really the story of the whole Bible. We just constantly see this, you know, where we're, we're messing with things, we create havoc with stuff, and uh, eventually God has to come in and save us from ourselves. Now, can you imagine, you know, Jacob, you, you, you can even look at his parenting pattern, he showed favoritism to the, because he had four wives and the wife he loved, he showed favoritism to her firstborn son, Joseph. And it created all kinds of problems in the family dynamics. We know the story. The brothers became uh, jealous of Joseph. They saw that his father had given them this amazing coat. It was a coat of honor. And like, he's not even the firstborn son. I mean, he's way down the line. But everybody gets what's going on here. And to make matters worse, Joseph is a little snitch in some ways. He's always telling on his brothers. And then he has these amazing dreams And in his dreams, he actually sees himself as being exalted, and his brothers are bowing down to him. How many know that doesn't fly with your older brothers? I'm going to be on top of you guys eventually, you know. And uh, they they were not happy with Joseph. And we know the story. Joseph is now uh, coming over there to tell him, you know, Dad's been looking, must know what's going on here. And they grab him, and they throw him in this dried-out well. And eventually some Midianite traders come along. They were actually debating killing him, but one of the older brothers interceded for him. And they sold him into slavery. And they said, what will happen to your dreams now, Joseph? And isn't that true in our life that we can have all these amazing dreams in our hearts? But a lot of times, the journey to the dream sometimes is very challenging. And we can see that in Joseph's life. So he's 17 years old. He's sold into slavery. He's bought by Potiphar, the captain of uh, Pharaoh's guard. And uh, eventually, God, the Bible says God was with Joseph. God honored Joseph. He was bright. He was able to steward or manage Potiphar's household. Potiphar trusted him implicitly. And later on, the Bible says that Potiphar's wife had a design for Joseph. Joseph was a person of integrity. These are all bylines, by the way, of ancient people to show a high degree of morality. And Joseph actually met the test. He didn't fall for her, but she was accusing him of you know, molesting her. Husband comes home, is upset, throws him into jail. So now Joseph has been sold into slavery, and now he's in jail, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. Can you imagine kind of the heartache that Joseph has experienced and wondering in his mind, God, where are you in all of this mess? Then we read the story that, you know, there's two guys in jail, both officials of the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. One's the butler, one's the baker. The baker actually was 
trying to probably kill the king because later on he has a dream. Joseph says, no, in three days you're going to be killed. The butler is restored back to his position. Joseph says, hey, remember me. You know, I've been unjustly treated. I shouldn't be here. And uh, the Bible says, but then he forgot Joseph. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting story? So here was his great hope to be released just went by the wayside. And how many times in our life have we had those kind of disappointments where we had our hopes built up, we thought this was the avenue, this is the door, and then all of a sudden the door closes. And we're all going, God, where are you in all of this? So Joseph now is stuck in prison two more years until Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And then the butler says, oh, I remembered something I should have recalled. There was a young Hebrew slave I mean, young Hebrew prisoner, and he said, he actually interpreted my dream, and it's exactly what happened. And Pharaoh raised him up. Joseph interprets his dream. He elevates him. So now Joseph has moved from a place of humility to a place where he is now exalted. But I asked the question, what was Joseph to make of the hardships and sufferings that had come to him? I wonder what went through his mind. How was he to respond to many of those unreasonable situations that he had faced, which many times seemed kind of bizarre? How many go, this is kind of an unusual life? You know, it's just like, I'm, every, I'm doing the right thing and bad things are happening to me. And a lot of times people ask that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Joseph could have been asking that same question. Could he not? Certainly. Did he feel forsaken? Did he feel abandoned by the God of his fathers? Did Joseph maybe even despair of life itself? Don't you think there was a few self-pitying days in prison? Don't you think there was a few blue times and going, hey, what's going down here? You know, and his hopes are lifted, his hopes are dashed. How many know hope deferred makes the heart sick, the Proverbs tells us. So we know Joseph went through that experience. But we have no record from Scripture, but we do see this from Scripture That at the end, Joseph, in hindsight, could look back and go, you know all those bad things that were happening? God used them for good. And as a matter of fact, he says that, uh, you know, basically to his brothers later on. But I want to take a look at Joseph's life, not from a human perspective, because that's how we look at our lives, really, from a human perspective. But how does God see the disappointing moments in our lives. And I think when we get a different angle and a higher perspective on things and we can look back in hindsight, we can see things a lot differently. God was using Joseph as a human vessel to save a nation. God knew that there was a famine coming. God knew he wanted to rescue his people. But then you always have people, oh, this is that verse of scripture I'm talking about in Genesis. We'll come back to that. Why did, why, you know, we always have people say, well, why didn't God just not have a famine, right? Yeah, those are kind of the way people go with you. You know, could it be that, but I'm, I'm raising the question, maybe the famine came because God was actually trying to address something in the life of the people in the land. I believe it was true. He was trying to do that. Could it be that God was warning the inhabitants of Canaan that they needed to turn to him and that they were actually morally degenerating and that the, the culture was sliding to a level that eventually they were going to be totally wiping themselves out. No, sin has a negative consequence in all of our lives. Could it be that God was in the process of relocating Jacob, the patriarch, and his family, giving the people of Canaan, now watch this, 400 years to repent? Because that's how long Jacob and his descendants were in the land of Egypt. 400 years. How many know God is long-suffering? How many know that God, just because God doesn't deal with 
evil immediately, it doesn't mean that God's not going to ultimately address it. And gave them 400 years. That's what I call long-suffering. That's what I call God's grace and goodness. And yet people just kept turning away from God. Sin must be addressed or it'll eventually bring more wide-scale death and destruction in in its wake. But you know what? Let me go back to that text in Genesis here. Last verse. His brothers now coming at the end when Jacob, the father, had died. And they were nervous because they're the ones that sold Jacob you know, into slavery. And they came and asked Jacob to free, uh, Joseph to forgive him. And they said, even our father told you, you should forgive us. And here's Joseph's response. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph had a different perspective on what was happening to him. How many know Joseph was kind of a guy that took the high road? He said, yeah, you might, you might have meant that, but God was in control of the whole thing. Folks, we need to get a vantage point that's a lot different. We've got to stop looking at the woundedness, the hurt, the difficulties, the challenges that come into our lives and say, but what is God doing? How does God see what he's doing? What is God really trying to teach me in all of this? Where is this really going? What's the destiny God has in mind? Why is there a sense of mystery to what God is doing in our lives. But you know what I notice? In, that's a historical context. What about now? What about our context? What happens in our daily lives? I think we find that conflict continues. I think there's a lot of people conflicted within themselves. There's a lot of unrest within the human soul. There's a lot of despair inside of ourselves. Oh, I think we're addressing it, but usually we do it in a medical sort of way in our culture today. Haven't you noticed that depression seems to be elevating all the time? More and more people are dealing with anxiety and difficulties, and we talk about all these mental issues. But let me just say something. If we're not in a right relationship with God, what do you think that's going to do to our innermost being? How's that going to impact us? See, I don't think, we don't even talk about that. You know what I've noticed? We don't even talk about spiritual things. We don't talk about a relationship with God. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk, because you know, today everybody's okay. We've told a whole culture we're okay. And yet the reality is we're not okay. You see, even though we pretend everything is okay, we know everything's not okay because we experience it in our souls, in our minds, and in our bodies. We have conflict in ourselves. We have conflict between ourselves and our marriages. We have conflict in our families. We have conflict at work. We have conflict, you know, between nations. There is so much conflictedness in our world today. How many go, that's true, pastor? Isn't that true? Come on now. We see it all the time, you know, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get at because that's the nature of what sin does. Until we can get it inside of us that there's peace within our own hearts can we really have peace amongst ourselves and in relationships one to another we have to win that battle within us first of all so here we have uh, this amazing uh, element here in the book of ephesians ephesians chapter one and so in ephesians chapter one i think we find one of the most powerful hope-filled verses in the new testament we have a description of God's ultimate purpose. Now, last week, I, I was in chapter 1, and I looked at two words. I talked about redemption and what it meant, and then I talked about forgiveness, and I said those are synonymous ideas. And I talked about what God really did was ransomed us and freed us from our sins. 
I mean, I think that's an amazing thought, that God actually addresses the core problem with us. And he can actually deliver us from our sins. And he allows his nature to be put inside of us. And that you and I have a choice to do the right thing because God gives us the power to do the right thing. Well, this week, I want to focus in on two truths that are found in these verses. And let me just read them here. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. So in other words, God has a plan, God has a will, God, and, and, he, and it's all found in Christ. So the answer to our problems are going to be in Christ. He goes on to say here, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So here we are. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis Garden. What's there? perfect environment. What happened? Sin entered the world. What did God have to do? Address the sin problem. How did he do it? Through Jesus Christ. What's the outcome? We've had 2,000 years, but we're moving towards the ultimate answer. And the ultimate answer is even though we've experienced, many of us, the salvation that we have in Christ, the ultimate answer is going to be fulfilled. And you know, that's why I was preaching at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And what happens at the end? No more sin, no more sickness, no more sore, no more death, no more dying. New heaven, new earth. What was wrong with the old ones? They were tainted by sin. God is building and renewing and reviving and restoring. And I brought that out in that whole entire series till we get to the end. And now all of a sudden a new heaven comes down to meet a new earth. That's an amazing, amazing picture that God has for us. But let's take a look here. Two truths that give us hope when life doesn't make sense. And I think there's a lot of moments in life when life doesn't seem to make sense. So I think we've got to go back and say, okay, this isn't making sense to me. What do I need to know? And I would say to everybody, the two things that keep me going when life doesn't make sense is, number one, God is good, God is loving, and also he's in control. And he's fulfilling a purpose. So first of all, what I'm saying is I know the nature of God and I know that God has a purpose in it. I know that there are challenges between the nature of God and the purposes of God and that's what we're living in right now, this, this conflicted time. So let's take a look at how God brings hope to us in life's most challenging moments. I want to go back to a time in Israel's history when they had sinned against God, and God had warned them repeatedly, hundreds of years, sending messenger after messenger, but people weren't listening to them. And they had a covenant with God. And if you study the Mosaic covenant, you'll find out that God had warned them, if they did not obey this covenant, that he would displace them and remove them from the land. That's exactly what he did. He says, I'm going to cause the heavens to shut down the rain, which God did at times. But eventually, he says, I'm just going to exile you. I'm going to move you into captivity. And now they're in captivity. They've disobeyed God. And Jeremiah is is telling them, okay, guys, this is what's happening. Because once you've been disciplined, how many know, once the, the boom has fallen, if I can say it that way, once you've experienced the crushing blow of discipline, then you're sitting down going, God doesn't love me anymore. And how many people, you you talk to them, and they get this feeling like, you know, they've done the wrong thing, and they've been disciplined many times by the consequences of their own sin, but God's allowing that to happen in their lives, and then people say, well, God doesn't love me anymore. 
Isn't that true? Uh, anybody run into that? I, I've heard that. I've been a pastor a long time. I've heard all kinds of stuff. That's a line that I've heard. You know, God doesn't care about me. Look what he's allowing to happen in my life. You know, it's like I'm blaming God for all the bad things. I'm going, well, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, what, what, did, what part did you play in all of this? It's almost like we're not even involved in this thing. Okay, but listen to what God says through Jeremiah. Now they're in captivity. God gives them a promise. He says this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Now, that's a message that's given to people who have been disciplined. Now, if I'm a good parent, what am I going to do after I discipline my child? I need to affirm that I love them, right? You know, a lot of times when we're disciplining somebody, we don't understand. People are so insecure today, you have to affirm them, first of all. You have to start with affirmation. And you've got to explain to them, I, it's not that I'm rejecting you, and I'm not rejecting these 50 things that you're amazing in, but here's an area that's destroying you. This is what we're addressing today. You know, it's not like you're a bad person necessarily. It's just that this issue has to change in your life, or it will take you out. You have to make that change, or it's going to destroy you. Isn't that true? And there are things in our lives that will destroy us. And if we don't address them, they'll destroy our relationships. They'll destroy our future. And so God is bringing discipline. But now he's promising them hope in the future. How many like this verse? I like this verse. Some of you probably highlighted it in your Bible. But you know, we, you know, we we'll usually stop after this verse. I think we've got to keep reading. So what's the next verse? He says... Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So now God says, listen, yeah, I'm, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bless you. But then he says, it's all designed to bring you to me. And I shared in the book of Revelation, all those challenges that people were experiencing were designed to bring them to God. And you know what? When you and I are a true follower of Christ, when we go through the good times or the bad times, it should always be bringing us to Christ. You know, I'm thanking him in the good times and I'm crying out to him in the difficult times. But it's always bringing me to Christ. And then he says, God says, I'm going to listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you what? Seek me with all your heart. That means your entire being. Now I've got to ask a question. Do you feel like at this moment in your life you're seeking God with all your heart? Got real quiet there. A few chuckles. Think about what that's being said. I mean, are we really pursuing after God? God is interested in having this relationship with us, but sometimes we get so locked into the day-to-day activity of life that God gets put on the back burner. How many can say that's true, Pastor? You know, I, I end up, you know, getting so caught up in raising my kids or working or paying the bills or the challenges or, or this or that that it just seems like God just gets pushed in the background. And what I'm trying to say to us today is God needs to be in the foreground. He needs to be the one I'm pursuing. He needs to be the one I'm seeking His face daily. And I'm like the psalmist, earnestly do I seek you. I long for you. As my, uh, David even says, as my, as, as my body longs to drink water. How many know when you're thirsty, your body's going to crave water? Isn't that true? And that David says, my desire for you, God, is stronger than even my craving for something to drink. Isn't that an amazing statement? He's stating an element of passion. So he's challenging us to pursue God. And God says, when you do this, when you seek for me me with all of your heart, you're going to have me reveal myself to you. 
That is such a beautiful promise that we need to hear. Then he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord. And I'm going to bring you back to the place for which I've carried you into exile. Now, we need to hear stuff, you know, because I think we have usually a distorted concept of God. Usually we have a bunch of people say God will never allow anything bad to happen to us. I don't believe that. And then on the other side, you've got people who actually believe God's always out here beating us up. And I'm going, neither viewpoint is correct. We have a good God who loves us and will allow us to be disciplined if we're going to be rebellious against him. But God says, if you turn to me, I'm going to restore you. Wow. Is that amazing? And I've seen it where people's lives have been so shattered and broken by sin, come back to Christ, they humble themselves, they cry out to God, and God starts this powerful work of restoration in their life and in their relationships. And I go, yes! You know? But this is not a sitcom. It doesn't happen in 30 minutes. You know, or a two-hour movie. This is a journey, folks. And some people get their life so messed up and entangled, it takes time for all that effects And some of the effects will always be there. And that's why I say to people, don't make light of sin. Oh, God will forgive me, Pastor. He's a God of grace. I'm going, yeah, but there's consequences to sin. And you might have to live with those consequences the rest of your life. Even though God will forgive you, and even though God will love you, you're still dealing with the consequences. And we could preach on that for a long time. But let me move on here. It says in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, the word mystery needs to be understood in its biblical usage. And what does that mean? Well, usually you and I think of a mystery as something that has to be solved, right? But here in the New Testament understanding, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of brings it out, he said the word mystery in the New Testament does not mean something that is incomprehensible to the human mind but is rather something that is undiscoverable by the unaided human mind. How many are catching a distinction? What is he saying? It's not about how bright you are. You and I need assistance by God to understand what his will is. You and I need his spirit to reveal himself to us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit today is active. And his main job, his main function in the Trinity is simply to make Christ real to us. Is that beautiful? So sometimes we get caught up. Well, you know, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I do too. But that's not the main job. The main job of the Holy Spirit is to make Christ real to us. And that's so powerful when he does that in our lives. It is a mystery in the sense that man with his unaided fallen mind and intellect can never discover it or arrive at it. But when it is revealed to him, he's able to understand it. So powerful. You know, a lot of people say, Pastor, I have a hard time understanding the Bible. You know what the first thing I say to them is? Come as a child, open it up, and say, Okay, I need the assistance of your spirit father to help me to begin to understand this book. And that's the first prayer. And you know, I've been a Christian for 43 years, and I'm saying to myself, I still come to the book that way. I still say, Lord, I know you can speak to me. I know that you can reveal truth to me. I know your spirit can enlighten my heart and mind. Bring these things to my, in, into my life. And the spirit of God answers those kinds of prayers. And then Paul talks about God's wisdom as a hidden wisdom. Hidden to those who are wise in their own eyes. And that's why, you know, we read in the book of Proverbs, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll do what? He'll direct your steps. And then it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. 
Boy, that's important, isn't it? To have a, a, you know, that sense, I have to depend on God. I have to ask God for assistance in order to make it. So how does this grace of receiving spiritual truth impact our understanding of God? Well, I don't know if you know this, but Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. He says, you know, Jews require a sign, but the Greeks, they want uh, wisdom. I mean, the Greeks really like wisdom. Matter of fact, a lot of our great philosophers are Greeks. Aristotle, Plato, all of those guys were Greeks. And so they're into, you know, the mind, you know, understanding. And this is what Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says then, for it is written, and now he's quoting the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intellect, I will frustrate. You can study in a seminary, you can study and get a PhD and not know God. You know, I know, because I've been in seminaries for a long time, and it can be a cemetery, you know, where people are actually getting further away from God. You know, they're questioning everything. They're putting their intellect above the Word of God, rather than putting the Word of God above themselves and allowing the Word of God to examine them. We sometimes think we can examine God. Good luck. You know, it's a finite person trying to examine an infinite person. It's not going to work. It's the other way around. God is the one who examines us. As a matter of fact, you and I are blind to a lot of things in our own lives. That's why the psalmist prays, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. What an amazing prayer. That's found in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Read that beautiful prayer. You know, I love it. Then it says here, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So what is he talking about here? Well, you have to understand wisdom. Wisdom is a skill. And what he's basically telling them is that God will destroy, destroy the skill of the orator and the wise. Because you see, you know, the Greeks loved, you know, oratory. They loved the ability to communicate. And Paul actually was not a great communicator. He had a brilliant mind, but he wasn't a great communicator. And Paul says, listen, I, I, I'm not coming here to impress you with my words. He said, the kingdom of God is not just mere words. It is, you know, the power of God, and it's a demonstration of God. It brings about transformation in people's lives. There's a power in God's word, and we need to understand that. And then he goes on to say, I'll go on and say this, that conversion, this transformation, is actually a work of God's spirit upon the human heart. Isn't it amazing? Kind of a light bulb comes on and you go, oh, I get it. You know, you could be studying this stuff and then one day, poop, it comes on. You just go, wow, this is hitting me with impact. You know, you know I, I jokingly say a lot of people have all the software in their computer. They just need to get plugged in. You know, it's all been downloaded. They've, been, they've got all the information. Once it gets plugged in, it's amazing what starts happening. It's just so exciting. Uh, the Bible says the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them <clears throat> Excuse me, because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, it's the Spirit of God that's revealing this stuff to us. Bob Morey was once asked by a, 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 an atheist, a very aggressive woman who was an atheist, and, and you know, she said <clears throat> to him, you know, she wanted him to prove the Bible's truthfulness. And he said, well, every time you open your mouth, you're proving it. She goes, what do you mean by that statement? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you fear God? She says, no. He said, you just proved Romans 3.18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, then he proceeded. Is the 
gospel, the good news about Jesus, foolish to you? She goes, absolutely. You've just proven 1 Corinthians 1.18. I just had that up a minute ago. The cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Perishing. And then he said, do you want your own way instead of living according to God's way? And she said, I don't want God's way. I want to do, you know, I'll do as I please. He said, see, you've just proven Isaiah's words. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone his own way, you know. And by the way, that's the truth. What the Bible is doing is examining the human behavior and identifying it and putting it up and saying, this is the way we operate. And we can fight it. We can resist it. We can deny it. But it's reality. I was sharing in the first service when I was in Bible college. We used to go down to the streets of Seattle and share the gospel with people. And one day I was talking to an elderly guy, and he was really belligerent. You know, he just was, couldn't talk to him. And finally I said, you know, God, because he told me he didn't believe in God and all that stuff, and he's giving me a hard time. I just said, hey, listen, God has a word for you. He goes, yeah, what is that? And then I just quoted him, Psalm 14.1. I said, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And then he just looked at me, and I said, see you. And I walked away, started talking to some other people. This guy was so stunned. It was almost as if I'd hit him on the head with a hammer. You know, it was just like, and then I noticed, you know, like, you know, half an hour later, I'm still sharing with people, and I look, and he's across the street, and he's staring at me like, what just hit me? See, because the Spirit of God, you have to understand a little something else. Before we went, we spent hours praying. And I actually prayed before I said those verses. And I felt directed by God's Spirit to say that. I know God was talking to this guy. And God was challenging him. Be careful what you say. You know, I'm not suggesting everybody you walk up to is not a believer. You say that scripture verse. That's not going to fly very good. Don't, don't try that. You have to be directed by God. But that's, that's exactly what happened there. So... Let me just move on here. I'm going to get to Colossians here. It's very interesting that Colossians and Ephesians are tied together. Very dramatically. I think they're both written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Oh, let me get, before I get to this text, I want to share a story. You know, salvation is really God revealing himself to us. And the story is told of Charles Berry. He, He pastored a church in London in the 1800s. And one day he, he, was, uh, he was kind of describing his own experience, how he came to faith in Christ. And he said, I was in my study one day, and he said, I had been preaching what he called a very thin gospel. In other words, he was just basically telling people, you know, if you're, you know to be a Christian, you have to just do what Jesus did, live the good life, live the Christian life. You know, it was kind of that kind of a message. And uh, one night he was in his study and he heard a pounding at the door and he went to the door and here was this young woman and she was absolutely distraught. And she's saying to him, are you a minister? He says, yes, you need to get my mother in. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. He was thinking basically that her mother was probably somebody out in the streets, probably had a few too many and needed assistance to get home. He said, why don't you go get a police officer? She goes, no, you don't understand. You need to get my mother into heaven. And so she drug him, you know, she said, please come. My mother's dying. Please come. And so he went and he followed her to her home. And there he saw this woman and she was, you know, he could see that she was dying. And uh, so he said to this lady, uh, he began to tell her how good Jesus is and how kind he is and how we have to live for him. And finally, this woman says, listen, I'm dying. I don't have time to live for him. I just need help knowing, you know, how to how to be prepared to meet him. You know, 
What can you say to a person like me who, you know, I, I, I'm so messed up. I've done all these wrong things. I feel so guilty and so, so much shame. How am I, how am I going to stand in a holy God's presence? And, and uh, can you tell me how I can have mercy? And finally, he was sit, standing there realizing that the message he had been preaching had no, had no impact on that situation. There was nothing he could say to her until he remembered back as a child on his mother's knees, her telling him, the story of how Jesus died for sinners. And as he began to tell her the story that Jesus came to save sinners, and how all she had to do is put her faith in Christ, that Jesus would forgive. Just like that thief on the cross that said, Lord, remember me when you're in paradise. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just that simple faith in Christ alone. And he began to share that with her, And all of a sudden he said, not only did she come into the kingdom of God, he said, but at that moment, what I was sharing her was bringing me into the kingdom of God. And it changed his ministry. It changed his life. So what's this mystery that Paul is talking about? Well, he's talking about the gospel. And listen to what it says here in Colossians 1.25. He says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the mystery of God's will. It's so powerful. God created humanity. God made a provision in the garden. Remember that? He killed the animal, clothed them. Then we go all the way to Noah. God's rescued him. And then we've, we have the story as it continues to unfold. You know, all the way through, it's bringing us to God choosing a family. That family becomes a nation. It's the people of Israel. They have a covenant relationship with God, but yet they violate that covenant. God says, that's fine. I'm going to create a new covenant with you. Jeremiah talks about this in his message to the nation. He says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change who you are. You see, the law of God is not bad, but you and I can't keep the law. We're incapable of doing it. But he says, I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that will want to follow God. And how does he do that? Christ comes into this world. And even though the nation of Israel were supposed to bring the message as a witness to the nations. They had failed to do so. You know, sometimes we walk around going, well, I've got the good news, but what do we need to do with it? We need to share it with others. You know, God is trying to teach us, if I've given you something, it's for you to share with others, not just to keep it to yourself. And so finally Jesus comes, and, and he dies for the sins of the whole world. But now Paul the Apostle takes this message and says, this isn't just for Jewish people. This isn't just for God's covenant people. This is the mystery that in ages past, God wanted all the nations to know God. And so now even non-Jewish people could come into God's kingdom and be part of God's covenant family. That's the mystery. And the mystery is simply this, that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, reveals Christ and makes Christ dwell within us. That's the mystery. How God can make Christ be born in our hearts. Isn't that amazing? And even the Apostle Paul says that. I'm, I'm praying that, you know, that you know, the, the life of Christ that's been conceived in you will grow and develop. This is powerful stuff. This is what this is all about. 
So we see how this mystery comes to us. But let me move on to this uh, the second point here. What's God's ultimate purpose? What is it that this crazy planet, this whole universe is moving towards? In verse 10, I think we have that powerful expression where he says here, to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is what God is doing, folks. We need to understand it. So our culture can interpret anything it wants to, but once it interprets away from what God's purposes are, you will find yourself fighting at cross purposes with God. That's all that will happen. Here's what God is doing. He's going to bring this whole world under his leadership. You say, how can he do that? Because Jesus is is not just a a human being. Yeah, he was human, but he was God in the flesh. And in Colossians, it says this, that he is the firstborn of the creation. But when we hear that, some of us get the wrong idea because the word firstborn, we think of as something that's generated. But Jesus Christ is not generated. He's eternal. That word literally means he is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent over this entire world. And then the very next verse, you get the meaning, because in Colossians chapter 1, it says there that it's in Christ. Let me just find it here and read it. Colossians 1. He says here in verse, let me go on verse 15, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that means he's preeminent, for in him, speaking of Christ, all things were created. Do you know who the creator is? Jesus was at creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How did God create the world? He spoke. Let there be light. There was light. Who's the Word? Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Listen to what he goes on to say. For, all, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow. He is before all things, and in him all things Hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I don't know, I'm reading these texts of Scripture, and, you know, if you really think about what I'm, I'm reading to you, What is he saying? He's saying Christ is the creator. And everything that was created was for him. So we have to make a paradigm shift as human beings. It's not about us. It's about him. And everything was created for his good pleasure. And he is the one that's reconciling everything back to God. And ultimately, everything will be reconciled back to God. How's that? And so all of these other pretenders, I'm going to say it very strongly now, All of these other ideologies that are leading away from Christ are actually going to be defeated. They're all going to be destroyed. So, you know, we can sit down and try to make peace with all that stuff, but I'm just going, it'll come to naught. It's going to come to nothing. 
You say, you got very strong ideas about Christianity. I go, no, this is Christianity. This is why the church was persecuted. This is why it's still persecuted today. Because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the way to God. It's through his death and resurrection that you and I can conquer death. That's the only reason why we have an eternal hope. But you say, Okay, I can see that this is where we're headed, but what about right now? What does it mean for me right now? I can see that we're, God has a purpose. God wants to reveal, you know, bring Christ, make Christ real into our lives. But what's, how does this future hope of you know, being with God affect my moment, this moment, this time, this present time in my life? And I just want to just read these verses here from the book, of uh, Colossians where it says for this reason since the day we heard about you we have not stopped praying for you we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord so here's here's the purpose for now I'm a Christian Christ is living inside of me What does God expect from me? To live a life worthy of him. That you and I are reflecting the image of God in our world. And that we would please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. How many here go, yeah, I'm a little short on endurance and I'm a little short on patience. Anybody want to admit to that? You know, isn't that true? So we need that. How many can say, you know what, i got some growing up to do? You know, I think sometimes we get to be adults and we think, oh good, I'm past the growing up stage. Sorry to tell you this. Until you're in eternity, you got room for growth. That's okay, I have room for growth too. I haven't arrived, I don't know all things. You know what, we're learning, right? We're on a journey. But what is God looking at? That he wants us to mature. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to develop. He wants us to live in a certain manner. That's what Paul's prayer was for the church at Colossae. Then he goes on to say, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So God has something for us in the future. And then the second thing is to make us realize that our present trials and hardships have a greater purpose And that eventually everything you're experiencing is going to go by the wayside. Every problem, every challenge, every adversity, every difficulty. You say, well, yeah, but pastor, I have this life-threatening illness. Or maybe I have a disability. I'll never go away. I want to have you stop for a moment. Think about this with me. If you live to be 80, what's 80 in comparison to eternity? It's like a vapor. It's like a snap. It's going to go right on by. You know how many people are making stupid decisions in the moment that's going to affect all of their eternity? Because every decision I make in the present is affecting my future. And if I make dumb decisions today, they're going to have negative consequences in my future. But just think of how significant eternity is compared to time. So you and I need to start thinking a little bit and saying, you know what? I want to live for Christ. That's why Paul wrote to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not worrying about this world. Hey, you know what? This is a brief moment. Better to have lived a very difficult earthly life and to have eternal bliss than to live a very blissful earthly life and have a miserable eternity. 
Because we're talking, there's a big difference between time and eternity, right? So let's stand this morning. The mystery of God's will. What is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this mystery? That God created a perfect world and he's going to redeem that. He has redeemed that world. I talked about that last week. And you and I are going to have this perfect future. Isn't that amazing? The mystery of his will is, even though I'm going through all of these difficulties in this life, I want you to know there is a purpose in it. Even though you and I may feel abandoned at times, you and I may question where God is in this situation, I want to encourage you today, you have an earthly vision. Joseph, in hindsight, could look back and say, no, I've got an eternal perspective now. You meant this for evil. But now as I look back, I go, how in the world would I have ever gotten to Egypt? If I hadn't been falsely accused and put in prison and met those two officials of Pharaoh, how would I have ever gotten before Pharaoh? Wouldn't have happened. But God was using these difficult steps in my life to move me from my humiliation to my exaltation. And I want to declare to you today that everything that you're experiencing in this earthly life, that God has allowed to happen in your life, God is going to use for your exaltation. You and I have to have the right perspective. Amen? See, some of you are discouraged. Some of you are in despair. Some of you are questioning. You've questioned God's goodness. You've questioned His love towards you. But I'm declaring to you today, God is good. And God is loving. And He has a purpose, even though you and I don't fully understand it. He's working His character in you. You're a child of God today. He's working Christ in you. He's making you more Christ-like. How many know that's a lot of work on our part to make us more like Jesus? There's a lot of changing that has to go on. I'm a prime candidate. See, I sometimes think God takes the worst culprits and makes them the preacher because then he has to do most of the work. You know? Then I have more stories to tell, right, about how God has to change us. I understand it. But with every head bowed this morning, maybe you're here today and you're listening to all this, you're going, Wow. This is so intriguing, so fascinating, so exciting in some ways that God knows who I am. And, and, and God is trying to break into my life with his spirit right now and make Christ real to me. See, I think a lot of times we can have an intellectual understanding of who God is. I grew up, I understood there was a God. I understood who Jesus was, but it was never real to me. It wasn't personal. You see, I needed to know that God was my Savior. I needed to experience forgiveness. You know, I could be told I was forgiven, but know when you call out to God. And I knew to call out to God because I was instructed to call out to God. But then the scripture says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wow, what a powerful thing that God could take a broken life, a confused life, a chaotic life, and transform it by His Spirit and His good grace his undeserved his, the favor that God gave that was not deserved maybe you're here today say pastor my life's so broken so confused so chaotic and I know that I need Christ into my life I need to have the spirit of God make Christ real to me maybe that's you today so with every head bowed right now just raise your hand that's you today you're saying I want to receive Christ I want to receive Christ yes yep People are responding this morning. It's good. 
Now, for many of us, different question. Just remember, just call out to Jesus. He'll save you. Here's the other question. Maybe I'm a child of God today. And you know what? I want to live a life worthy of Him. I don't want to just go through the motions. You know, I'm paying the mortgage. You know, I'm raising my family. But, you know, there's more to it than that. I want to be living a life that's worthy and pleasing to God. And I'm having an influence and an impact. I'm leaving a legacy in my family's life. You know, I was reading through the Psalms the other day. And, and you know, your obedience to God translates into blessing into your children's life. How many of that's true? And I, I, as I was reading through the Psalms, you know, it, it just God says, I'm going to make your descendants great in the land. I said, okay, God, I believe that. I'm going to walk in obedience, and I'm going to believe you're going to do that. I'm going to believe you're going to do that. So you can grab onto those promises of God and say, okay, God, I'm going to do your will. And I know my obedience is going to bring blessing, not only to my children, but even to you as a congregation. And how many know when a minister is disobedient to God, how does it bring such curse and brokenness into the lives of people? We see that over and over again. We have to say amen to that. See, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings heartache and brokenness. Some of you in this room, you're saying, you know, Pastor, I need to make things right with God today. I need to start living a worthy life. I need to acknowledge before God I'm not living the way I should. But, you know, from this moment on, by the help of God's grace, I choose to be obedient. And that's you today. Raise your hand right now. God's speaking to you right where you're at. Yeah, people's hands are going up because people, God's talking to you. It's awesome. It's good. Beautiful. God is hearing the cry of your heart. God is touching hearts today. This is beautiful. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you're the forgiving God. I thank you that you don't only bear our sins, you remove them. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. You're the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You're the scapegoat that we lay our hands on and you wander off in the wilderness never to see those sins. We thank you that you're a forgiver. We thank you, Lord, as we we make this consecration today. We're coming with our hands full. We're offering up ourselves. We offer our lives to you to live a life that will be worthy of you and to leave a magnificent legacy for our children and our grandchildren. Lord, I believe today that you're going to use people in this auditorium to bring such glory and honor to your name. That there's going to be many people in our city, region, and around our world that are blessed today because people are making a step of obedience, Lord. You're going to honor this. You're going to acknowledge it, and you're going to use it to bring honor and glory to you. People are going to be blessed because of this day in your life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.